It's nice to have you here today. I want to welcome you. Uh, This morning we do begin a new series called Present. When I was a kid, I went through a a large period of time where I didn't see my mom very much. And uh, it was a two or three year period just because of circumstances where where I I didn't interact with her, uh, but but just a, a few times, probably less than I can count on one hand. And there's one time, uh, it was my birthday, and I didn't expect to see my mom at all. And she showed up, and we didn't talk very much, but she gave me a, a birthday present. And, and she handed me this jar with this quarter in it, and that was it. And the truth is that my mom has given me tons of good Christmas presents through the years, uh, tons of good presents. I mean, she's given me two cars in my lifetime. She uh, got me new rims for those cars once. She's given me a bike. She's given me a computer. She's given me lots of nice stuff. But this, this right here is different because this is something that I still have for one thing. This is the most valuable thing to me. And I was processing uh, as I was as I was thinking about this sermon what describes what determines the value of something. When you google it it's not very helpful and and I, and I thought of three things first. I, I thought of time the things we spend our time doing, we value a lot. I thought of our words, the things we talk about a lot, we value those. And I, and I thought about money, the things that we spend our, our money on, we generally value pretty highly. Uh, but, as I, but as I considered that, it, it didn't really fit with this jar or this quarter. I don't spend much time with it. Uh, I don't talk about it too much. And, and it didn't cost me a single cent. And, uh, and, and so I, I thought... My original plan was to get up here and, and, and show you uh, maybe that you that you don't value Jesus during the Christmas season because of where you're putting your time and your money and your words, the things you're talking about. And, and I was even going to have a little scale and I was going to create some type of currency to put on one side. Uh, these are This is how you spend your time and your, your money and your words over here. And I was going to show you that really you don't value Jesus. But but even even more than that, I think, and, and this is the, what I've come up with, is I really thought about this uh, and what makes it so valuable how you can see that value in it from my perspective. And I, and I think what it is, is that you see the value in something based on your willingness or unwillingness to give it up. You see, you value the most the thing that you won't give up and you value the least the thing that you will give up. And sometimes time, money, and words can be a part of that. You can see that in the ways that you spend your time, money, and the things you talk about. But but the question uh, of value can be summed up in kind of the age-old question that we ask, and we, there's things that people like to talk about, and this is this is one of them. If your house was on fire, what would you save? And here's the thing for me, I mean, I think about it, I thought about it, and, and I would save any people in my house, that would be first, and then I would save my dog, that would be unquestioning. Hopefully I would go for the people before the dog, uh, but they're smarter than him, so who knows. Uh, but that would be the first two. And then I thought about it, and, and the honest truth is that the thing that I would save out of everything is this right here. His name is Augie. I've had him since before I can remember. Uh, we were about the same size at one time, uh, hanging out. Uh, he is, for all intents and purposes, my, my son. In fact, last night, Bryn put him in the back, kind of on the floor. 
And I said, don't put him there. And she said, it's on something. And I said, I love you a lot, but we're going to have a problem if you call him it again. Uh, And as I considered... Augie, the things we've been through together, the trips to Disneyland, uh, hard times, good times. He's always been there for me. He's been in many gunfights with me as a child. Uh, he, he was really, uh, when we played, when we, I played with my cousin, one of my best friends was my girl cousin who lived a couple houses down and she wanted to play house and I wanted to play guns. And so what would happen is we created this scenario where we lived in a house and we had a son and the bad guys were trying to capture him because he had a chip inside of him or something. And so I would shoot all the bad guys and she could play house. Augie lived through all of those moments with me. We've been in many forts together. Kate, do you mind if I give him your spot? He can probably play cello. Uh, and the truth is, if my house is on fire, I save the people, I save my dog, and I save Augie. He is the thing that I value more than my new TV that I got on Black Friday or, or any of the stuff that, that exists. And I, I genuinely was thinking about it and like, really? Is that the thing that you would get before anything else? And there's nothing else. You could burn all of it down. I'll replace it with the insurance money. Uh, And even if I couldn't, I I wouldn't really care that much, to be honest with you. But I value Augie because of the memories, because of what it means, because of it's one of the few things I have from when my parents were still married. Um, and, And so you see the value in the thing that you're unwilling to give up. And if you just go down a list, you put things like, okay, my wife or my dog, right? I mean, and you say, which one would I give up first? And then you could go like down to the very last thing and eventually you could discover what you value the most. And hopefully it is your, your, the people in your life along with your relationship with God. But you value the thing that you will not give up. And maybe you disagree with me and you'll tell me where I'm blind on that later, but that's what I've determined. And so I thought about Christmas. And as I look at the Christmas season... And I try to determine what we value as a society, what even Christians and what churches value, what I value. I think that I see that it's probably not Jesus. You see, we have these cute little sayings, Jesus is the reason for the season. Keep Christ in Christmas. You know them, right? You've probably posted them on Facebook already. And and you're ready to go. But if you're really to determine your value, the thing that you want to give up... I'm not sure Jesus is the reason for your season, and I'm not sure you're keeping Christ in Christmas. Just let's look at this stuff and the things that, that, that maybe are a part of Christmas that you'd probably be will, unwilling to give up. So the first one is, our, is ourself. And there are things that we need to continue to do. I wish they stopped during the holidays. When you're in school, they stop during the holidays. But we need to continue to work. We need to continue to eat. We need to continue to sleep. We need to continue to do those things. And so one thing that we value during the Christmas season that we, that we can't give up, really, because it's illogical, is, is simply keeping ourselves alive. And so I get that. You have to work. You have to do all of that. Now, the next one is people, and part of that, you may have responsibilities for your children or whatever, and you need to keep taking care of them. But during the Christmas season, we see that people take also our, our, our time and our money more. There's lots more gatherings. There's lots of donating that goes on. We're doing the canned food drive, and hopefully you remember that, and we have a goal of 100 pounds, and we may have accomplished that this morning, but, but keep bringing your canned food. But our time and our money is part of that, 
But also, I, I think that we're pretty unwilling to give up those kind of family gatherings and those get-togethers that we do every year. Next one will be food. And, and of course, we eat food all year round. But during the Christmas season, we spend a lot more effort on our food, right? And there's some things that I'm pretty unwilling to give up. Queen Anne cherries, uh, C's candy that nobody outside my family likes the flavor we get, but... I'm very unwilling to give that up. If it was, if you were going down a list, I'd be like, you, you can leave, but I'm, I'm keeping my candy, you know. Uh, and, and the next one is stuff. I mean, we, we shop and we shop and we shop, and it's a pretty big deal that we give presents. And, and you may even know this more because you're like, if I don't buy that person a present, then they're going to get mad at me. Or if the present isn't as good as it is for the other person or costs as much, then they're going to get mad at me. And so we, we pretty highly value kind of the stuff during this season. It's something that, that I don't think we'd be very willing to give up. Our traditions, cutting down the tree, decorating, the things that you do every single year, you're pretty unwilling to give them up, right? Especially if you're like me. I'm a very, uh, I'm a very traditional person. I like my traditions. I don't want anything to get in the way of them. And, and it's something, they are something that I really, I don't want to give up and I get upset if I, if I have to. And, and another one is church. And, and again, none of these are bad. Let me make that clear. But, but church is something that during the Christmas season for Christians, it's, it's a bigger deal that they go for non-Christians. It seems like less come during the Christmas season just because of the busyness of it all. But for Christians, it's like, well, I need to be at church and we have that get together and this is important to me. And none of these things, as you kind of look through your December and you just go down your calendar or look at your pocketbook or look at the things that you talk about. Hey, you got a great deal, you know. None of these things we seem willing to give up. But there's this guy named Jesus. And it seems that Jesus is the easiest to give up during the holiday season. I know it bothers you and you don't want it to be true of yourself, but just look at look at your life. And if you go down the list, most of the time you say, I should make Jesus the reason for this season. I need to keep Christ in Christmas. And I will, as long as there's enough time on Friday night, once I do all of my family traditions and eat all of my food and, and do all of the stuff that I need to do, then I'll get Jesus in there. And my belief is, and this is really what this series is about, that we don't understand the value of Jesus and we don't understand how to show Jesus, how to make Jesus valuable in our lives. We're at a loss for how to do that. It's easy to know how to eat. It's easy to know how to buy stuff. It's easy to know how to spend time with people. But it is difficult to say, what can I do differently this December to really make this holiday about Jesus? I mean, I have my nativity scenes up. Is that good enough? I'm going to sing my songs at church. Is that good enough? Or are there other things that I can be doing to really show Jesus that he is valuable in my life? And so the, the point of this series is to look at this, this group of people who you just were introduced to in the video called the Magi. That's what we'll call them. But we'll also call them the Wise Men. I may even say Three Kings and, and totally make the story inaccurate. But you'll know who I'm talking about the whole time. So this group of people, as we'll see, that show up to hang out with Jesus. And I think in them, in their story, which you'll find in Matthew chapter 2, you will discover two things. How valuable Jesus' birth really is. And how you can make it valuable and show it to be valuable and demonstrate its value in your own life. 
But before we look at that, we need to back up, and, and I know that we probably all understand that, that Christmas exists because Jesus was born, but today, before we look at the wise men for the next three weeks, I really just want to introduce you to the birth of Jesus. Because what we see is that God is giving this great present, the present really, to the world. And it's very important and you can tell by its introduction just how important and how valuable it is and why the wise men, the magi, were coming to celebrate it in the first place. Matthew one one says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now there are some really important things going on in this passage of Scripture. And uh, the first thing you need to know is that genealogies are very, 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 very important to the Jewish people. The only group of people that, that we can maybe use as an example for that would be the Mormon people, the LDS people today, where genealogies are very important and, and understanding your family background really kind of makes you who you are in their mind. And, and the Jewish people were similar to that. And, and it was a very big deal to them. And so you need to know that as we move into this because what's going to happen here is that we're going to see really Matthew begin to tell a story about this guy named Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas through the genealogy. But before he does that, he gives us this introduction that really could be an introduction to the whole book. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there's two words that simply translate Messiah. Uh, it, could be, it could be Christ and it could be Messiah. And they come from one word that has the simple, basic definition of anointed. And and we're going to look at, at this idea of Messiah in two weeks and we're really going to hash it out and everything it means and what it shows about Jesus and how valuable it makes him look to the Jewish people and hopefully to us as well as we more fully grasp what this was, the anointed one was. But today it's just important for you to understand that what took place is that Jesus and the Messiah was the one, is what Matthew is saying, that the Jewish people had looked forward to for really thousands of years. And what had happened is that the Bible had predicted that somebody would come who would set things right for the Israelites, the Jewish people. And during the time between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament, we see that the people had really latched on to this promise that had been there for thousands of years. They had become more excited about it. They had put some meaning to it. For better or worse, they started to believe that somebody would come sent by God who would rule as a military leader and would destroy the Romans who were oppressing the Jews and would restore to prominence the Israelite nation in all the world. Now some of that's not right. And as we look at this book, if you were to read the whole book of Matthew, what you see is that Jesus never tried to start a military revolution. Nor did he succeed because he didn't try. And so there's Jewish people who Matthew is writing to who are asking a question. I thought that the Messiah, this promised person, was going to take over the Romans. And now you are telling me that Jesus is the Messiah. How can that be true if he didn't do what we thought was going to take place? That's the question they're asking. And that is what, Jesus, that is what Matthew is trying to prove about Jesus. And that is why he introduces him as Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Now there's two names here that apparently are important to Matthew as you read them. He says the son of Abraham 
the son of David. And there's a reason for this. Abraham was the first person through whose family line it was predicted that the Messiah would come. In Genesis 22:18, we read, And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. One author said this, God gave Abraham great and special promises. These included the promise of possession of the land of Palestine forever, a great people to live in it, a special relationship with God for Abraham's descendants, and ultimately a descendant through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so the first person through whose family line the Messiah is promised, this chosen one, this anointed one, the Christ is promised, is the person of Abraham. And so it's important for Matthew to show us in this genealogy that Jesus comes from the lineage of Abraham in the Old Testament. Now the other one is David, and David was the last person through whose family line it was promised that the Messiah would come. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Because of this promise, the Jewish people who lived about the time of Jesus' birth and during the life of Jesus even referred to the Messiah as the Son of David. Listen to Matthew twelve twenty three. All the people were astonished. They're talking about Jesus and the things that he's doing. And said, could this be the Son of David? The significance is easy to see, right? I mean, if somebody is truly going to be the one that God promised, then they must be the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham and the great, 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 great grandson of David. Has to be that way. And the Jewish people, because they were so into their genealogies, were meticulous in keeping records. And it is now Matthew's goal to prove that Jesus is in that lineage. Now, before I read you this, there's there's a few things that are really important. I'm going to read the whole genealogy and uh, hopefully you won't be bored. I know you've skipped it every time you've tried to read the Bible, if you've ever read it, but it's just too important and too valuable to what God is trying to say to us. But some, some very significant points before I even read it. First, the genealogy records, genealogical records for the Jewish people were destroyed in 70 A.D. This is a big deal, because according to Matthew and the rest of Scripture, someone would have to prove their lineage coming through Abraham and David, and that is no longer possible for anybody. And so if Jesus and his generation didn't have the Messiah in it, then the Messiah, the promised one, will never come. And so the Jewish people today who are looking for somebody to come really need to look and say, yeah, He can't come now because he couldn't prove that he was the Messiah. Now, secondly, we need to understand, and this one really bothers me, but it's true, Jewish genealogies do not need to be complete. If you were to look at this genealogy that I'll read to you in a moment, and you were to go back to the Old Testament and look at the genealogies, you would say, seems like there's a bunch of names missing. That doesn't seem right to me. Now, I know it's weird, and I know it's un-American, and I know you don't like it, but the truth is, Jewish people, especially back then, did not care. Genealogies were meant to tell a story, to paint a picture, to show somebody to be powerful or special or, or whatever it might be. They were not meant to be, in the strictest sense, accurate genealogical records. 
Now, that doesn't mean there's no accuracy because he's trying to prove, look, he's in the lineage of so-and-so. But it also means that they can skip around and do whatever they want with them as long as they get kind of the main guys in there to prove the point and be uh, honest to what they're actually trying to say. So that's, that's the first thing that's really important. The second thing is that numbers have more meaning to Jewish people than they do to us. Some commentators have argued that Matthew uses 14 generations because the numerical value of David's name in Hebrew letters is 14. Unlike the English alphabet, Greek and Hebrew letters were also used as numerals. The Jewish practice of counting the numeric values of words and deriving meaning from them came to be called gematria. And so we look in the Jewish people... It's a big deal to them. I mean, what your number of your name is, that's important for as far as telling a story about who you are and what you do and all of those kinds of things. And at the end of this genealogy, I won't come back to this, but you'll see there's 14 generations between this, there was 14 generations between this, there's 14 generations between this. And all of it is in order that Matthew can say, look, this guy really is the son, the great, 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 great grandson of David. It all makes sense with the 14s, only if you're Jewish. Third, no person questions the genealogy of Jesus during his lifetime. That's really important. Because as an American, kind of the way we think, we say, well, you left out, you left out generations, can I trust you? Now, people accuse Jesus of everything. They say, hey, your power comes from Satan. Hey, you are not doing things that are right. You're trying to overthrow the law that God gave. Hey, you're immoral. You hang out with adulterers and you hang out with drunkards and you hang out with tax collectors. You hang out with sinners. You're not that good of a guy. But nobody ever looks at Jesus and says, I'm sorry, man, you can't be the Messiah because you're not in the lineage of Abraham and David. Nobody ever says that because they know it to be true. And then the fourth thing that's really important about what I'm going to read to you is that women are not normally included in genealogies, okay? And so hopefully these will be in bold up here. I think we got that taken care of. Let me read you Matthew 2, 2 through 16. Follow along with me. Notice especially the women and the things in bold. Ready? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amenadab. Amenadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, 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 the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elehud, Elehud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. 
There's some things here that are really important. That's why we read all of those names. That's why they're in there. And the, the key thing that I want you to see is these four women. Not normal for them to be in there. The first one is Tamar. And this is important. She was a Canaanite woman. That means a non-Jewish woman, as her name suggests. And she married the eldest son of Judah. His name was Ur, and, and Ur died because of his wickedness, and so Judah asked his second son to give her offspring, which was proper to do by the Jewish law at the time, and, and so they get married, and he dies. And so she says, give me your third son, and now Judah's like, this woman's cursed. I'm not giving you my third and last son so that you can end his life too. But he doesn't tell her that. He says, okay, just wait till he gets older. His youngest son gets older, and Tamar waits and waits and waits and she eventually realizes that he's not, she's not going to get the third son in marriage. And so she devises a plan and her plan is this, I'll dress up as a prostitute and then when Judah comes down the road, I will entice him to come in and sleep with me. And this is what happens in the story. This is right there in the Bible. I'm not making this up. I didn't get it off of Days of Our Lives. And she waits and they have their thing and then she becomes pregnant by the man who was her father-in-law. Her father-in-law finds out she's pregnant and is going to put her to death. But she's able to prove that it was him who had slept with her and caused her to be pregnant. Why do you include that? In the genealogy. I mean, if you're skipping around, right? I mean, that's... Uh, let's forget about that one. Don't talk about Aunt Betty, you know? I mean, come on. That shouldn't be in there. Okay, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, which also means she was non-Jewish. And the Moabites derived from an incestuous relationship between a guy named Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, and his daughter, this is what we read. They did not meet... They did, oh, and the Moabites, this is what we read about them. They did not come to meet you, talking about the Israelites, with food and drink when you were on your way out of Egypt, and even hired Balaam, son of Beor, to oppose you by cursing you. And so these, this group of people, the Moabites, was seen as like a major enemy of the Jews, because even though they had some Jewish blood in them, they had turned their backs on them in their time of need, and even done their best to put a curse on the Israelite nation. I mean, don't put her in there. She's one of those guys. The next one is Rahab. Rahab was also a Canaanite, not Jewish. And Rahab, who we studied just a few weeks ago in this church, was a prostitute. Don't put her in there. And then we read this really weird line. Like, it's just, it says this. It doesn't even say the woman's name. It says, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Think, well, that's different. Now, we know that this is a woman named Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is the one who has a baby with David. But Bathsheba was not David's first wife. And in fact, wasn't his wife at all until he made it that way. You see, one day Bathsheba, while her husband is at war, is bathing on top of her roof. And David looks down. Finds out that she's married, but says, I want her anyway. Calls her up to his palace. They, they make love, whatever you want to say there. Um, oh, I'm feeling awkward. Uh, and, and, and she gets pregnant. So David says, I have to cover this up because I've committed adultery and her husband's off fighting a war that I should be fighting. What do I do? He goes and gets the husband. And the husband comes back, and Uriah is an honorable man. He says, I'm not, I'm not going in there to sleep in my bed and hang out with my wife when my troops are still off at war. There's no way I'm getting in there, going in there. 
So David sends him back to the battlefield, knowing he needs to cover up this pregnancy, and makes him go to the front line where he's died. Where he dies. David murders this man in order to cover up adultery. And Matthew chooses to word it like this one more time, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, if you really need Bathsheba in there, just put Bathsheba and we'll kind of know, but we don't need everybody in the world to kind of have all of our business out there. You know, I mean, let's just kind of cover that up. And what we see in this genealogy, especially in these women who are not Jews, and all of whom in some way have interesting moments, we see that Matthew is trying to tell us that the present that is Jesus, the greatest present, as he'll show us in a moment, is for everybody, everywhere, no matter how bad they think they are, no matter what they have done. You see, Matthew, just even in the genealogy, wants the world to know that this present, this baby who's coming that should be celebrated at Christmas, he is not just for the the righteous, he is not for those who have lived good lives, he is not for one nationality, he is not for one gender, he is not for one socioeconomic status person, he is for everybody And he wants it to be clear that it's for all time because he goes through the history of Israel. Maybe you noticed this. He goes through the glory years when David was the king. And then, not only that, but he goes to the exile in Babylon when the Jewish people had sinned against God so much that God had allowed them to be taken over by another group of people. He says, look, this this present is for everybody no matter what they've done and no matter who they are. And it's for all people of all time. If you don't believe it, if you're like, well, that's not good enough for me, just think about this. Think about Jeconiah who gets included in there. This is what we read about, about Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22.30. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. He so says you can't have a king anymore. Now, this guy, Jeconiah, repents in Jeremiah 32, but it remains true throughout the history of the world that in a physical sense, this man who had been king of Israel would never have another king on the throne, one of his sons, one of his grandsons, it wasn't going to happen. But in a spiritual sense, Jesus comes and he reverses the curse of Jeconiah's life. I mean, this is even for people, this Messiah is even for people, this gift is even for people who have no right to have Jesus as their king, as their promised one, the one who will set things right. Still don't believe me? Think about a guy named Matthew who wrote this book. Later in this book, Matthew will declare that Jesus found him while he was collecting taxes. It's not something that any of the other books in the Bible tell us. Now, we go, well, tax collecting, and we don't like those people, but that's not that bad. But in first century... Uh, Jewish world, it was the worst thing that anybody could do. Because they worked for the Roman government who was oppressing the people, and they would spend their days ripping off the Jews. They were traitors by every sense of that word. They had turned their backs on their own people and were working for the enemy, and they were really, really oppressing the people whose blood they shared. Why does Matthew include that? It's the same reason he includes Tamar and Bathsheba the same reason that he includes Jeconiah because he wants you to understand that this present, the present that is Jesus, is a gift from God for everybody. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. 
It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how bad you've been or what other people think of you. Jesus came to this earth for you. Matthew turns his attention from that. He says, look, it's for everybody, but now I need you to understand that it isn't just for everybody. It's also something that everybody should want to take a hold of. Everybody should place a high value on. Everybody should be excited about. Everybody should accept and believe in. He turns really to the virgin birth. This is what Matthew 1.18 says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now notice again that Jesus is called the Messiah, but then also notice that his dad... Joseph, that's what we know him, but not his physical dad, as you saw in the genealogy, but his dad by law, Joseph, and Mary, his mother, the one he would be born from, are pledged to be married. Now, this is similar to what we know as engagement today, but it comes with a lot more commitment, where engagements can be broken fairly easily in our society today. There's no real promise. They, when they got pledged to be married, were as married people, except they did not come together to consummate the marriage. Instead, there would be a one-year waiting period, and during that waiting period, one of the things that would happen is they would say, or examine, or look at, is this woman pregnant? Because they were trying to prove whether or not she had been faithful. And so when we read that Mary was found to be pregnant, this is a really, really, really big deal. She's a woman that now looks unfaithful, something that could have been, by the Jewish law, punishable by death. Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. At the time Jesus is born, thankfully for Mary, uh, usually people weren't stoned for this act, but they were publicly shamed and humiliated. They would not be able to find another husband. When their parents died, they would have nobody to take care of them because women didn't work like they do today. And it would have been absolutely awful. And the Bible says to us, That this came by the Holy Spirit, but Joseph doesn't know this when we encounter him for the first time in the story, Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And so we see Joseph has this dilemma. He's a very nice guy. But he is also a guy who holds to the law, who's righteous, who wants to do what God wants, and he knows that he has an obligation to now break off this engagement, this marriage. And so Joseph, instead of throwing her out on the street and yelling and screaming and and making fun of her and calling her names and even going before a court so that she could be shamed forever, chooses, decides that he is going to simply divorce her quietly. Now this is the unfair world in which they lived. In order for Joseph, the man, to divorce this woman, Mary, he wouldn't have even needed a judge. If it was the other way around, she would have had some serious work to do. If she was trying to divorce him for his unfaithfulness, she would have had to gone through the courts. She would have had to have witnesses to his unfaithfulness. But for him, he could have just walked up to her, told her family, said this is done because she has been unfaithful. And that is what Joseph sets his mind to do. But then in Matthew 1, 20 and 21, we read, But after he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's interesting because the angel appears, something that will happen about a million times it feels like in chapter 2 to Joseph. But Joseph is called the son of David. It's the only time in all of the Bible when anybody but Jesus is called this. And it's as if Matthew is saying, one more time, I need you to understand that Jesus was in the lineage of David. Now here we get this simple statement of the virgin birth. And you've probably heard of this before. Mary had not been with a man. She had not known a man as the King James says it. And it's appropriate because we have children in here. She had not known a man yet. And yet she becomes pregnant. Something that's impossible. It's never happened before. It will never happen again. And there are many different views. Many different opinions on why this had to happen. Some people say, well, it needed to happen in order to get rid of original sin. Kind of the sin that's in us from the time that we're born. Because we'll see later in Matthew, if we were to continue through chapter 2, that that he was totally sinless. But there's a problem with that. Logically, it would say that, that original sin only comes through the man. That's a problem for me. Now, it may not be a problem for the women in our church, but it's a problem for me to say that. Some people say that it needed to happen uh, in order that... It's the other one. Um, in order that Jesus could fulfill prophecy, and that is maybe kind of true, as we will see in a moment, but, but not fully true. And so what uh, we need to understand is that the virgin birth was really important for some reason that we will never know. But this is what I really want you to understand today. The greatest gifts, the gifts that people are excited about, the presents that we're really stoked to give somebody are presents that we present in the best way possible. And here we have a story where there's angels coming to tell about this present that God is giving the world. There are, there are uh, announcements by thousands of angels in, in the book of Luke. And we see that Jesus, this present from God to the earth, comes in the form of a virgin, something that can't be duplicated, something that's never happened before. And it's as if God is saying, look, I'm giving you something so amazing and awesome, I'm going to present it to you in the most beautiful way possible. Bryn's grandma goes by Mimi, is, uh, is passionate about Christmas and passionate about giving people gifts. And she works hard for really months on end to, to find the right stuff for the right people. And, uh, and she works really hard at it. And the way that you can see that it's really important, it's really special to her to give you the right gift is the way in which she wraps it. And, and I can't describe it to you. And, and if I was giving this sermon in just a little bit, I would have saved something for you. But, but it's so intricate and beautiful and designed and it's been thought out. And, and you don't want to open the present. Normally I'm just a ripper. I'm not saving wrapping paper or anything like that. But you feel like a need to like carefully take it apart because... The wrapping paper might have cost more than what I bought for the other people here. And things like that. And you know that it's important to her and that she values what she's giving you because of the way in which it's wrapped. Likewise, when I gave my wife a ring and asked her to be my wife, uh, I worked really hard to make sure that that was wrapped in a good way. In fact, uh, I was... I was Proposed to her uh, in in Denver, Colorado, just outside of Denver. She was able to come out and stay with some family friends, and I was out there for school. And uh, we had we had been there before together on a mission trip, and we had stumbled upon this spot with a bunch of people. 
that overlooked the Rocky Mountains and the sun was setting and it was absolutely incredible. Now, when you accidentally find a place in a city that you that you don't know at all and, and you don't know the name of this place that you found, it's really difficult to find again. But I literally went down 3D version of Google Maps driving down the road between the two places that I knew in Denver in order to find a picture of the place that I had been so I could propose there. I mean, literally, Arrow. That's not it. That's not it. Hey, nice car. That's not it. You know, I mean, all the way down. I mean, I'm like miles trying to find where I wanted to propose because it was a big deal. I mean, you should see the way I wrap presents now. I Like, okay, here you go. You know, I put it in a bag. Um, I'm all about the bag. But, but when it was this one moment, this special thing, the wrapping, the presentation of it mattered like crazy. And, and in the virgin birth and the, and the accompanying of angels... It's like God is looking at us and he's saying, look, what I have done here, what I'm about to give you, the reason that I have made this woman pregnant by my spirit is so important that I can't just drop it on the scene. It has to be special so that you know it's special. But not only is the, the wrapping good, not only is the presentation of Jesus good, because what this angel says to Joseph about this son that he is about to have is very important. He says that his name shall be Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. That's a big deal. I mean, that's a really, really just kind of a big deal. And I don't know that Joseph understood all of the depth of that, what that meant and, and things like that. But, but the, the name Jesus, actually Yeshua, is the Hebrew name. That's what Jesus would have been called. I wonder if he knows who we're singing to when we sing our song sometimes. But, but yeah, he does, I'm kidding. Uh, but, but Jesus was the name Yeshua. And Yeshua was a very common name for, for young boys. It means Yahweh saves. And, and so Jesus' name wasn't unique. But that last statement, because he will save people from their sins. And in this first moment, before Jesus is even born, before uh, Joseph even has seen a woman that looks pregnant, his wife, we, we find out one of the key components of Jesus, and that is that he has come to save people. And I just want you to think about this. I, I just This is the story that you, that you read as you continue through the gospel, that Jesus came and he lives perfectly and then he, he dies on a cross. And the reason he dies is to remove sin from people. And, and just, just for a moment, just kind of think about you and what you've done wrong in your life. Ready, go. You already got one, right? I mean, you know you did something wrong. And whether you're a Christian or not, or you understand sin and what that means, or that word's a foreign concept, you know you've done a lot of things that are bad and wrong. And what this angel is declaring to Jesus' dad, according to the law, according to the lineage, is say, look, this kid has come so that your guilt and your shame and your punishment for that wrong thing that you just thought of can be taken away that is huge i mean that is absolutely huge and i know at christmas sometimes we want to we want to skip right to jesus death and his resurrection i don't even want to do that today i just want to think about this the baby who was born the baby who was born came he was born in order that you and those wrong things that you just thought of could be removed from your life that makes him pretty valuable but the story isn't done yet 
Because in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, this is what we read. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus went by the name Emmanuel while he was on earth. This is more about the character, and this is more about what Christians would understand about Jesus later in, in, in history, and that is that Jesus was God in human form. He was, he was God incarnate. He was God in flesh. Jesus wasn't just some man, but he was actually 100% man and, and 100% God. That's what the Bible tells us. And just... Just think about this. I just want you to consider this and what's being said by Matthew in these moments. That is that the God of the universe, the one who created everything, and everything that we cannot even see the end of, even with all of our telescopes and everything, the God who created all of that came to earth in the person of Jesus. Now, we, we know this in Christian circles as the Trinity. We believe that God is three persons who constitute one. And, and that's a hard thing to explain and understand. And, and, and I don't want to try to explain and understand it to you because I don't think Joseph would have understood it. And that's okay. I'll explain it in a different sermon. But right now, just be, just, I hope this is what I want you to, just to think like, wow. You know, I mean, don't think like, what? Uh, how does that work? Just, wow. We say it with me? One, two, three. Wow. Yeah, like the God of the universe came here in the form of a baby. We have a lot of babies being born at our church, right? And, and, and it's crazy because you can't like leave them over there in a corner and just go away and, and just say goodbye and they'll take care of themselves. I mean, it's like the most fragile thing on the earth is a baby. And God, out of love, is present. Jesus is himself coming down to us. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion. I mean, any, any religion will tell you how to get to God. They'll say, hey, do this, do that, work really hard, die in a jihad, uh, fulfill all of these rules, don't do anything on Sunday. You know, I mean, every religion seems like it has, like here, as long as you do this, you can get to God. And, and in this one statement, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus' name. God says, I'm going to change the paradigm for every other religion. I'm not going to tell you how to get to me. I'm going to come down there and I'm going to get you. And all you have to do is accept that I did that and that I removed your sins. And then you can come and be with me because I came down to be with you. You see, Jesus changed everything because he is God in human form. And it's crazy that people... I just... I get, ugh, it just makes me so mad. Don't claim that all religions are the same. Don't be an idiot. I mean, I don't care if you don't like my religion. That won't make me mad at you. I'll try to convince you that you're wrong. But don't be stupid. Because my God didn't tell me to die in a jihad. My God hasn't said, if you follow these rules perfectly, then you can get into heaven. My God said, I'll come down there to remove your sins so that if you accept this gift, if you accept the present that is me, then you can come and be with me in perfection and eternity. All religions are not the same. Ours is better. Now, this is the thing. We look at Jesus, and right in this first thing, we see that it's the greatest presence, the present to the world. He is, he is Jesus the one who will save us from our sins. He is the Messiah, the promised one, who is going to set things right. And He is God in human form. And this gift is for everybody at all times, no matter background or history or problems or sin or whatever it might be. And yet, 
We come to the time of year when we should celebrate his birth and we can't even find it in us to make him the most valuable thing. And and the question that I have is why? I know many of you believe this and, and, and I don't know about all of you, but many of you believe this and yet you'll go through this Christmas season and and you'll think, i got to do all this other stuff and maybe I can squeeze Jesus in there because Chad preached a sermon on it. And my question is why? If we really believe this is the, the one who takes away sins, the Messiah, the, the God in human form, then why is it so difficult? And this is what I think it's like. Have you ever opened... I, first of all, I hate opening presents in front of people. It's like the worst thing. It was very nice to have so many of you at my birthday party, my 30th birthday this summer. But the worst part of that whole thing was opening presents in front of you. And, and here's the reason. I Even if I like a present more than anything I've ever received in my life. I feel the need to be fake to show you that I liked it that much. And so it's like, I could be thinking in my head, this is the greatest gift, but I'm also thinking, all right, show it's the greatest gift, show it's the greatest gift, show it's the greatest gift, you know? And I absolutely hate it. So that said, I, I think that, that kind of what happens is, it's like when we, we're opening a present, you may know this feeling, and, and the look in somebody's eyes is one of like pure excitement. Like they know they got you the thing that you've always wanted. They know they got you the perfect gift. It's just, it's going to change your life and you'll never be the same. And you can see it, they're glowing. And you're like, oh, this is going to be great. And you're tearing, you're tearing. And you're starting to get the present revealed to you. And and you see the box and you start to see what's on the box. And, and one of two things happens. Either A, you don't really know why. It's a good present, right? You don't know why it's a good present. You're thinking, what do I need that for? Uh, what is it? Or I, I've never seen one of these. And you start to think like, I hope it's just the box and they put something inside. <laughs> you know, you've been there. Or you're going, that's awesome, but I don't really know what to do with it. I mean, I just, and, and so you're opening and, and, and you're like, Oh, I don't like it. I hate it, in fact. But smile. Act like it's the greatest present. Or, oh, I'm never going to use this because I don't know how to use this. I mean, it's really awesome, but what does it do? And in those moments, you realize that you don't value this present nearly as much as the person giving it. And if we were truthful with each other, sometimes I think that's the way it is with with Jesus. I mean, we can look at the story of Christmas that I just kind of read to you and the, kind of the point of this baby being born. And, and it's easy to go, wow, I can tell God was super excited to give this to me. I mean, you could tell that he was smiling the whole time and showing me that it's for me, even though all of it, I've done all these things wrong and showing me how great it is through the virgin birth and promising it in the Old Testament. But, but really, I don't understand the, the value of Jesus. And even if I do kind of understand the value of Jesus, I don't really know how to like make use of it when I celebrate it. I don't really know what to do when I celebrate it. But there's good news. Because maybe you've kept those presents on your shelf for a long time. The, the present that you opened wishing it was the box. Maybe it's still in the box. And have you ever had like this moment? Somebody walks into the house. They look at this gift that you thought was junk, that you had no value in, and they're like, oh my goodness, that's the greatest gift ever. Who gave you this? How much did you pay for this? And all of a sudden, you go, yeah, it's awesome. You can't borrow it. 
Because <laughs> you all of a sudden know. And they're like, can I use it? And you're thinking, oh, yes, because then I'll know what to do with it. You know, like I'll know how to use this or why it's important or why it's cool. And all of a sudden, it changes the perspective of a present for you, right? I mean, all it takes is one person saying, that sweater looks really nice on you. And all of a sudden, the sweater looks better, right? I mean, yeah, I thought so too. Or, or one person saying, can I use it? Or can we play that? Or can we try it out? And you're going, yes, this is awesome all of a sudden. And this is what I think we're going to do for the next three weeks. Is we're going to look at the present of Jesus. But we're going to look at it through some people who understood its value and understood how to celebrate, use, display its value to the world, the Magi. And in so doing, what I think will take place is twofold. I think that you will more, more fully grasp the importance, the value of this present, this thing that God has given us, this man God named Jesus. You'll understand really the value of a Messiah, a Savior, God with us. And and you'll have just an intellectual and hopefully spiritual just understanding that this is something that I should never, ever give up. This should not be something, this, this person should not be a person that I put on the back shelf and say, I'll get to you later. But the other really cool part, and maybe even the most exciting part of this for me, is that I think in this series when we study the Magi, they don't just show us the value of Jesus but they actually show us how we can show Jesus that we think he is valuable. And so, will you, I hope, I hope you will, go on this journey with me as we study kind of the forgotten men of Christmas, these men who traveled for 3.5 months, 900 miles, they forsook everything in order to kind of be with Jesus and to show Jesus his worth, his value, and how they understood that. And I hope that you will be excited to look at their story And just begin to understand that this gift, Jesus, this baby who was born, the one that should be the reason for the season, this person that we should keep in Christmas, Christ, is so valuable. And that there are real and tangible ways that we can place our value in Him and show Him to be valuable to the world this season. Will you pray with me? Lord, Lord, even though we kind of intellectually understand how great, some of us here at least understand how great of a gift Jesus was to us and how awesome that is, Lord, um, sometimes, God, we, uh, we don't really. I mean, deep down in our hearts, God, we, we, kinda, we know that it should feel more, you should feel more valuable to us, Lord. And, and maybe we've gone through every Christmas, God, thinking like, I, I would really like to care more about Jesus this Christmas, but then we find that we get to the next Christmas and we're saying the same thing. And, and Lord, I really believe that, you know I believe that, that there's two things going on. Either we don't understand how awesome you are, Jesus, and what a wonderful gift you were to the world, to us, or God, uh, we really don't know how to make you look valuable. And, and it's easy for us to know how to spend money and easy for us to know how to spend time with people, but we, we're kind of at a loss for how to actually make you the reason for the season, God. Uh, and Lord, truthfully, I mean, it is difficult, Lord. I mean, you died 2,000 years ago and, and rose to heaven. And we believe that you interact with us still, God. But, but when you don't sit in front of us, it makes it difficult to really celebrate you in a way that, that remembers you and focuses on you. And, and so I pray, God, over this, these next few weeks, Lord, um, you would really show us 
why you are to be valued and how we can value you, God, in a, in a tangible and real way. Lord, I pray that every person who's here right now, God, would understand the truth of, of who you are as far as, as the Savior who takes away sins. And, and God, as far as, as you being Emmanuel, God with us, and the Messiah, the Promised One. And, and Lord, I pray that, that for anybody here who just doesn't understand that, who doesn't have a relationship with you, that this morning that you would just draw them to yourself. And Lord, I pray that, that people would, would want to value you. And then maybe, God, this sermon, and kind of leave it as a cliffhanger, maybe they're, they're thinking like, well, that's something I want. And, and I pray that, that no excuse or no reason would keep them away from, from being here again and again to really learn from these, these guys who, who knew you. Even though they had never met you, they, they knew enough to show really your true value to the world. And I pray that they would come back and be a part of this, Lord. And, and Lord, I, I just ask that you would be celebrated by us. And, and that's really my goal, Lord, is that this Christmas we would take a step forward in really making Christmas about you. And, and not just by what we post on Facebook and kind of with the things we say, but really making you, God, I just pray we, we would more and more make you the very thing that we could not give up. And Lord, if, if you stripped away, God, all of it, if you stripped away the presence and you stripped away, God, the the music that we sing, and if you stripped away the decorations, and you stripped away the food, and you stripped away the family get-togethers, God, we would still be left celebrating because the thing that we value most would still be here, and that is you, Lord. Love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.